Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 254, Worcester. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Patrick, Brian, and Joshua for signing up already. If you read of old Britain, I mean, even if you read of modern Britain, you'd be forgiven if you thought that it was all London. Just all London from top to bottom. Because London really soaks up a ton of the spotlight. It's sort of like Stonehenge of the non-Neolithic period. You just can't avoid it. And we won't avoid it here either. London will be covered regularly, because it has to be. But Britain, not even England, is entirely London. In fact, a lot of people in Britain have never been to London. So, for today, let's talk about a different town. Because while London is important, it's not the only urban center on the island. And while we've been talking about the development of the economic landscape of the Anglo-Saxon territories during the Viking Age, we haven't yet talked about how these towns specifically functioned and developed. Instead, we've just been discussing this in the abstract. So let's talk about Worcester and how it developed. Now, Worcester is old, like Neolithic old, though in those early days, it was probably just a waypoint on a major Neolithic trade route. But later on, in the Iron Ages, it became part of the territory of the British Kingdom of Dabuni. And as the region was populated with hill forts, which was common at the time, the area of Worcester became fortified. However, for the most part, Worcester just flew under the radar until the Roman occupation. And actually, even when it was Roman, it wasn't a marquee site. I think that's why it worked so well for this, to be honest. It was just a small Roman town that was devoted to a couple industries, as was common with Roman industrialization. So in the case of Worcester, they were raising cattle and they were smelting iron. And I bet the locals smelled like roses. But honestly, there just wasn't much about Worcester that anyone in the ancient world would have seen as exceptional. However, there was one thing about Worcester that made it unique and desirable in the post-Roman era. And it's something that very well may date back to Worcester's Dabuni days. Surrounding the town was an oval earthen embankment, exactly the same sort of thing that surrounded the old hill forts. And on top of that, the old Roman town walls were still standing. And in the bellicose sub-Roman days, having such sturdy defenses would have made Worcester the place to be. So people started moving in. And then Christianity returned to the island. And the church in Rome tended to prefer to establish its communities and dioceses in old Roman ruins. And if there was already a religious community at that location, that was even better. And it turned out that Worcester was exactly this sort of site. So in about 680, Archbishop Theodore created a see for the kingdom of the Huiche. And within the walls of Worcester, he ordered that they build a church dedicated to St. Peter. And they did. Now the town had two major religious houses, St. Helens and St. Peter's. And the religious community grew. And so did the power of the sea. And so by around the year 800, it was acting as a mother church for several well-known communities in the region, including probably St. Albans and St. Margaret's. This degree of religious power and the size of the religious community at St. Peter's and St. Helens 
meant that Worcester would have developed into a sizable town for its time and place. It also would have been a fairly active settlement. Don't think of a quiet and pious place of purely monks and priests. The clergy located there would have probably been permanently housed due to the site's prominence. And they, as well as their families if they had them, would have required a significant amount of, for lack of a better term, support staff. The fact of the matter is that eldermen travel. They go out riding with court, and that provides them opportunities for trade. And it also relieves pressure on their settlement when they're out of town with their retinues. But high-status clergy tend to stay put. Same with the monks. So if they need something, it would need to be provided by the community or brought in through trade. The fact of the matter is that it takes a lot of people working in the fields, gathering firewood, caring for livestock. It takes a lot of builders, craftsmen, laborers, blacksmiths, slaves, and everything else in between to enable a community to dedicate their lives to religious study and worship. And Worcester didn't just have one major religious house. It had two. Worcester would have been big. It also would have been wealthy. Technically, those living on the bishop's lands, which were vast, owed him a portion of those lands' produce. So if you were raising sheep, you'd probably owe the bishop some wool and maybe some mutton. That sort of thing. We see records of the bishop receiving livestock, ham, cheese, bread, grain, mead, ale, even candles. The bishop even had some rights to Droitwich, which was pretty much an industrial-scale salt production site. And that alone would have made the bishop rich. But the point is that he was in command of a ton of land, and he was getting all kinds of stuff sent to him. And while he would use a portion of that to support the religious communities that he oversaw, he also would have had surpluses. In fact, the surpluses appear to have been so significant that we have records that the bishop was accepting direct payment of money rather than the produce that he was officially owed. Presumably because money was more useful to him than yet another cow. But even with some people paying in money, there still was a ton of stuff being delivered to the bishop. Much more stuff than was needed, which means that he would have to sell whatever he couldn't effectively preserve. And that meant that the seeds of trade were being planted in Worcester. And consequently, we start to find coinage and other evidence of trade. In the archaeological record, we have evidence of luxury goods being traded in Worcester, as well as being given as gifts by the bishop. And when we look at the type and style of the goods, and how similar they are to goods that are found in places as far as Essex, it appears that Worcester was part of a trade route. And that would make sense. After all, Britain was a network of such routes, and considering that Worcester would have provided easy access to the Severn, and considering the scale of the settlement in and around it, the crazy thing would be not tying Worcester in with one of those routes. Furthermore, the Bishop of Worcester was wealthy. Really wealthy. He was so wealthy, in fact, that he even had financial interests in London. And those were only heightened when King Athelbald of Mercia granted him immunity from tolls and taxes for any trade that he did in London. So now, the Bishop was able to have a couple ships traveling back and forth from Worcester to London. And by the 800s, we even see the Bishop of Worcester obtaining property directly within London, as well as obtaining commercial privileges. Needless to say, all of this heavily suggests that the Bishop was directly involved in trade. Now Worcester, despite the fact that it was for the most part just a small bishop's town rather than a large trading center, 
had an advantage that many other places didn't. It wasn't directly in the path of the Danish raiders, the way other coastal towns were. Similarly, it wasn't right on the edge of East Anglia or Northumbria. So unlike places like London, which Worcester was kind of insulated. The strikes and the drastic reduction in trade in the early 9th century no doubt would have had an effect on the burgeoning empire that was developing the bishop's town, but it wasn't crushed the way, say, Santon was. And instead, it found itself being one of the beneficiaries of the expansion of growth that followed Chippenham. Specifically, Worcester was identified as a site for one of Alfred's new burrs. And when you look at it, it was a natural location. It was central, it was already economically important, and because of the presence of the old Roman walls and the older earthen embankment, it was already partially fortified. So, Elderman Athelred of Mercia, on behalf of Alfred, instructed the Bishop of Worcester that it was his duty to construct a burr at the town. Now, this was no minor ask. Worcester, despite the fact that it was clearly becoming part of a trading network, was still a private ecclesiastical holding. Building a burr on the site, and then tying it in with a network of similar defensive structures all throughout the region, would transform Worcester into much more of a public location. The bishop would also be required to build the burr and provide the people to man it. And while they could use the still-standing Roman walls for much of the defenses, the walls themselves didn't really contain enough land for a typical burr. And so the bishop would be required to provide materials and labor to add a further seven hectares of enclosed land around some pastures on the northern part of the settlement. And honestly, even after doing this, it would still leave the burr of Worcester smaller than many of the other burrs. But the fact of the matter is that what the elderman was asking, even with this smaller settlement, was for the bishop to agree to be part of the king's network and to pay for the privilege. And in the process he would also lose some of his pasture lands. Lands that he had been drawing an income from for ages. So this was no small matter. And I imagine that there was quite a bit of negotiation that happened between the bishop and Athelred on whether this task really should be carried out, and if so, how. But in the end, the bishop agreed. It looks like at the heart of this discussion was the issue of trade. Specifically, the expansion of it. Extending the burrow over the pasture land would have resulted in a whole new district opening up within the walls. And as you might remember, these burrs weren't just walls. It was a complete redesign of the city. Within the walls was an entire grid of ordered streets. The idea being that they want to facilitate fast movement of troops from one side to the other. And consequently, Building that grid would require some reconstruction within Worcester, but it would also require fresh construction for the new district that was just created. Consequently, building the burr would be a mixed bag for the bishop. It would be expensive, but it also would provide protection from the Danes. It would disrupt the town and likely require some demolition, but it also would potentially provide new economic stature through trade. And all of these things would have been weighing on the bishop as he considered what to do next. But the other thing he was likely considering was the danger of the Northmen. While Worcester wasn't out on the edge, these raiding bands were now going far inland. He couldn't guarantee that he'd be safe forever, and his town needed protection. And so the bishop and the elderman reached an agreement. 
They would construct the burr according to Athelred's specifications. The seven new hectares of land would be converted into a thriving urban center. And they would also build eight new commercial lots, what they called Haga. And those would be built along either side of the new high street. And the presence of these Haga turned the new high street into a major thoroughfare of Worcester. And that created the natural conditions for a major marketplace. But there was a catch. There's always a catch. And in this case, it was that any new trade that was conducted within Worcester would be subject to tolls and fees. And the bishop would receive half of that income, while the elderman Athelred would get the other half. Similarly, any fines and fees related to the legal system conducted within Worcester would now be subject to that same 50-50 split. So what had been the bishop's sole domain was now split between him and his overlord, Athelred of Mercia. And there are many different ways to interpret this. You could look at this whole decision as a cold cost-benefit analysis. While Worcester was doing well, they just had two ships going to London, and that didn't make it a major trading hub. But if they converted into a burr, that would give the bishop's settlement a chance of becoming a fully-fledged trading town. If it grew, the bishopric could see profits far beyond what it was previously capable of, despite any split with the local secular authorities. And in the meantime, as everything was growing, this 50-50 split only applied to new transactions. So if there wasn't anything new, he was giving away half of nothing. So who cares? I can totally see how this could have been a raw monetary calculation. But that being said, the Danes were a real and present threat. And markets aren't born overnight. Not even markets that have shown early signs of growth and have the support of the authorities. It would take time for Worcester to develop. And in the meantime, the bishop went from being all-powerful in Worcester to being just one of several powerful people. So, there's a good argument here that Worcester was an example of how the threat of raids was placing so much pressure on settlements that powerful lords were surrendering their autonomy in exchange for some semblance of safety, the way people often do. Consequently, the development of Worcester could be a reflection of Alfred and Athelred playing the role that so many strongmen in history have done. It's hard to say. But whatever the cause behind it was, the burr was constructed. However, even though the town was set up with the anticipation of trade, it took at least two generations before we start to see the large-scale settlement of craftsmen and traders, and the crowded streets, and the ever-rotating cast of travelers that we typically expect to see out of a bustling market town. So this whole thing took a while. And part of the reason why it took so long is because the world isn't determined by a couple rich dudes. The bishop and the eldermen might have come to an agreement on how to lay out Worcester. They might have mobilized a lot of resources to carry out that vision. But turning a religious settlement into a full-blown political and economic burr required more than just that. In fact, their agreement wasn't even the most important part of turning Worcester into a market town. The most important part was taking place in small homes or in public houses, or even on the road, or around a fire. The most important part are the countless decisions made by individuals and families to uproot and relocate to this new burr, to settle in this new district, or set up shop on one of the Haga. Without regular people immigrating to Worcester, this whole experiment would have failed. 
Similarly, the influx of craftsmen would only matter if traders decided to stop there, and if there were enough people seeking trade. What Worcester needed was demand. And not just nobles looking for things like silk, but also general people looking for some wool, or maybe a new sheep, or whatever. Now, the presence of the walls probably did provide quite an incentive to move, thanks to the threat of the Danes. But ultimately, Worcester would thrive or collapse based upon the countless decisions made by people who never get mentioned in any of our sources. And those decisions would take time. And meanwhile, as those choices were being made, Worcester just had a lot of open land and a hope. And I can't stress this enough. All of this was once the bishop's sole domain. What was happening here is his lands were being carved up. He was having to share out land. The pressures of book land that we've been talking about were now being directly brought to bear within the bishop's own town. And we see it happening fast. For example, within just a few years, we have records of the bishop leasing some prime riverfront real estate to Athelred's family. And all of this was happening probably just on the hope of safety and future profits. And that would ultimately depend on whether or not people decided to move to Worcester. Now, luckily for the bishopric, they did. Traders and craftsmen started to move in and take advantage of the new opportunity. And then more came. And more. And pretty soon, they had to subdivide their haga. And then they had to subdivide them again. And these subdivisions show more than a simple increase in population and production. With each subdivision, the landowners had the opportunity to increase their profits from rent. This provided the landholders with a substantial increase to their revenue in exchange for essentially doing nothing. And yeah, exploiting renters is not a new thing. In fact, later on in Worcester's history, we even have a famously villainous sheriff who exploited his tenants for a horrendous profit. So, as Worcester grew, so did the wealth of those who held rights to the land. But still more people arrived. Iron workers, tool sharpeners, tanners, blacksmiths, and all manner of craftsmen were coming to Worcester. We also see a thriving wool and textile industry, as well as the widespread cultivation and eating of mutton. It seems that the local lords saw a market for sheep, and so they are exploiting it to such a degree that Worcester became a major Midlands capital for mutton. Things you never expected to learn on the BHP, right? But even with all these people who were arriving, there still were more opportunities. There was still more money to be made at market. And so more people came. In fact, over the generations, so many people came that we even see craftsmen forming, for lack of a better term, suburbs. Sidbury was one of these. And this was actually a rather common development. Craftsmen who were unable to settle within the market town would go and settle along the road that was leading to the market town. And then others would join them. And before long, you have a suburb that was a bit like a medieval mini-mall. But just because they were living outside the walls didn't mean that these craftsmen were living rent-free. They, too, were still paying rent to landlords and being taxed for trade, even though they were outside of the walls of the town. There was no escaping the system. And with that, the town was fully becoming a market town. And this was no doubt an economic boon to the landholding and merchant classes. But that wasn't appreciated by absolutely everybody. Once upon a time, 
Worcester had been smaller. It had been more focused upon religion, more closely governed by the clergy. And there were those who longed for the days before the markets and the mutton and the merchants. The thought was that they should be able to practice their religion in peace, removed from the wickedness of the common people. And so they came up with a plan to redevelop the monastic district of the town. And by the mid-900s, the defenses of the burr were moved and reorganized so as to create a boundary closer to the monasteries. The idea being that the market activity of High Street would no longer run so close to the minster, and thus they would remove the monks and clergy from the hustle and bustle of daily life in Worcester. Once again, culture was changing within the city of Worcester. It always was. But here's what I wanted to get at by telling you about Worcester. This wasn't a major town. It's not Jorvik or London. It was just a pretty average town that was the site of a sea for a minor Anglo-Saxon kingdom that later got absorbed by the Mercians. And all this happened long before anyone heard of Danish raiders. But following the events of the 9th century, life within Worcester began to change rapidly. People whose families had lived in Worcester for generations had a dramatically different relationship with the bishop than their ancestors did. Now, rather than being a settlement that relied upon laborers, slaves, and other supporting peasants to maintain the religious communities housed there, instead, we see dense streets, urban housing, and all the things that you would expect to see in a market town. Rather than the bishopric primarily drawing an income from in-kind deliveries of goods from its many laborers and peasants, now we're seeing an increased reliance on incomes from rents and tolls and fines and all the other related administrative incomes. So rather than an economy that was driven by land holding and agrarian production, we're seeing an economy that was driven by market forces and elite landholders who were seeking luxury goods. This is a massive shift in how life was being carried out. And you can't say that it came about because of any single action or decision. It's just a general shift, and pretty much everybody had to be a part of it for it actually to work. And the thing that makes Worcester so interesting is that it wasn't all that special. This type of thing was happening all over the place. It didn't always involve a bishopric, but all over Greater Wessex, we're seeing the daily life of people change and adapt to the new urbanization that was growing and developing in the shadow of these burrs. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can join us at British Podcast. And there are all kinds of other communities you can join. And you'll find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>